0: and good morning to you and welcome to the saturday morning show orion samuelson here from my studio in huntley illinois and outside right now it is 30 degrees so uh, we're down at that freezing mark and uh, you heard the forecast for what Could be in store for this weekend ahead of Thanksgiving, and we're getting ready for what I call the holiday trading season, because from now until January 2nd, uh, we're going to be impacted on the trading schedule at the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange and on Wall Street, because this coming week, uh, markets will be closed as the U.S. celebrates Thanksgiving Day. And there will be several closings between now and the new year. And among the notes that I'm looking at on my Reuters uh, news service this morning, yesterday Wisconsin's governor extended a statewide mask mandate. That's despite a legal challenge. And it renews an emergency health order requiring face coverings in public places to curb an alarming surge in the COVID-19 infections. The new decree from from Governor uh, Evers of uh, Wisconsin came six months after a coronavirus stay-at-home order issued last spring was invalidated by the state Supreme Court in a lawsuit that Republican lawmakers brought against the lockdown. The same court heard oral arguments on Monday in a similar lawsuit brought by a prominent Wisconsin conservative donor contesting the governor's authority to impose an earlier face-covering mandate, which is due to expire today. And although medical experts insist that masks are one of the most effective means for breaking the transmission cycle of the highly contagious disease, and that's why mask wearing has become deeply politicized. Many Republican politicians led by president trump have belittled or criticized face coverings as an infringement of personal freedom so if you're going north to wisconsin for the thanksgiving holiday this week the wisconsin governor says you must wear face masks in public and so it'll be interesting to watch how that plays out at uh, 11 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And uh, a cool day, but it looks fairly dry as we go into the weekend. And uh, Max Armstrong is spending the weekend in uh, the Quad Cities of Iowa, and uh, he'll be joining us to tell you why he's out there for the weekend. And in addition to that, Mike Pearson uh, will be joining us uh, to talk agricultural markets. And uh, we'll be talking about other events as well going into the weekend. So uh, we'll check in with Max Armstrong to find out what's going on in the agricultural world out there on the Mississippi River this weekend. So stay with us because we'll be joining Max here in a minute. We're coming up on 13 minutes after 5 o'clock here on this Saturday morning. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Max Armstrong spending some time this weekend at an agricultural event out on the mississippi river so uh, max tell us what you're doing out there and what's happening this weekend
1: well, good morning, Ori. And perhaps you and some of the listeners have seen those Meekum car auctions on television, where they bring in the muscle cars and they have those auctions in places like Schomburg or Indianapolis or Phoenix or Kissimmee, Florida. And those finely restored cars bring some incredible prices. Well, there's a rural version of that, the Meekum Gone Farming auctions. Meekham, based in Walworth, Wisconsin, has these all over the country for the cars, but only in one place, Davenport, Iowa, for the farm tractors. Some of those tractors are superbly restored, and some bring excellent prices. There is one of those auctions going on today. It'll be live on RFD-TV later this morning. But the past couple of days, they've held that auction at Davenport, through the graces of the governor of Iowa. Now, people were not allowed to attend this time. Generally, we have a great crowd sitting in the chairs as the auction takes place and as it is recorded for television, for broadcast on RFD-TV, and as it is shared over the Internet. All of the bidding that has been taking place at this auction has either been over the telephone or online through the internet. I talked about that with Max Wilson. Max is in McHenry County, Illinois. He works with John Deere dealership there. And we uh, brought Max in because he helps describe the tractors when they come across the auction block. He's one of the commentators there on the side describing these tractors and their attributes for the audience watching. And Max acknowledged, yeah, this one is just a little bit different than some of the auctions of the past
2: kind of a curveball it's very different very quiet but we're getting through and uh, i mean after one day under our belt prices still seem to be going pretty good so evidently everyone's jumping onto the virtual auction world now
1: routinely there are people to bid over the phone and over the internet for every auction correct
2: yeah it's it's always been available it's just now we've got to have a lot more people to cover the phones and the internet bids So far, so good. It seems to be working. I mean, we kind of drag on the item a little bit just because it is a little bit slower, making sure that we're getting all those bids in and recorded. But so far, so good. I mean, can't, can't complain about the weather we're having out here, and it's really a shame that people can't be here. But given the current world situation it's probably for the best.
1: We see a few people here. Are those individuals who have consigned tractors, and they're they're certainly socially spaced, they're away from each other, There aren't the crowds gathered together that you normally see here?
2: Yeah, it, a lot of it is it's consigners, or it may be people that want to come in and just inspect that tractor that they're really looking at. And I mean, you always want to bid with confidence, so at least we're allowed to let them on the grounds to view that tractor before it crosses a block and make sure it's what they want it to be.
1: Max, I'm trying to recall, is this the third auction when trucks, antique trucks, have been brought in? Is that number three or is it four?
2: Um, I believe it is number three. It would have started last November, so a year ago. That's kind of changed the world up here for uh, some of us on commentary. You know, we know the tractors. We we know some of the history on the trucks. It's quite interesting when you start getting into some of the different brands and that. Um, luckily, between me and Carl and Wendell, we're able to muddle through those and it maybe sound like we know what we're talking about. So,
1: The variety of trucks, uh, and, and very interesting trucks, it strikes me. I mean, you're, you're seeing, yes, farm trucks, nice old farm trucks coming through, some that date back... Uh, for example to the 40s and then there are some specialty trucks that roll through and, and you, you get a closer look and you just smile as you see what's going on with that truck
2: yeah we uh, we've got a few customs and a few uh resto mod street mod type trucks that probably as some of us as farm boys looked at dad's old truck and go man this thing is just slower than molasses we need to just hop it up a little bit and that's what they've done is hopped them up a little bit and really the paint jobs and everything you really get an idea what some of these old farm trucks have become over the years but we
1: also see some fire trucks we see some fuel trucks antique fuel trucks coming through uh, there was uh something that looked like a popcorn a uh, rolling popcorn machine actually it was uh they, it was for circuses i guess or festivals uh, it not only made popcorn but you could get a snow cone there you could get a fountain drink yeah what was that all
2: about well that was pretty <laughs> much someone purpose built that machine and they had a uh, fountain in there for your sodas coffee uh, popcorn any of the things it kind of think about it like you're walking down the midway at the fair that would have been something that caught your eye and you could have gone over and it was a pretty much a turnkey operation it was ready to go I think probably the only thing would have been to have your uh, local health health board, uh, just check off on it, make sure everything was up to spec. If I recall, it did not sell. It bid up fairly high, but it wasn't quite enough for the seller to let go of it.
1: I mentioned fire trucks. There was one from California here, and uh, it was back in the uh, early days of motorized uh, apparatus, and uh, it was a caddy chassis, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it was actually a Cadillac that uh, they had converted into a fire truck. The uh, local fire agency there as the population was expanding decided that they needed a fire truck and that's what they found was a couple year old cadillac and converted it into a fire truck probably the only one you'll ever see um it was actually pretty neat nice shape it ran nice did, and, did you look at the
1: water tank on there yeah <laughs> my, my spot sprayer tank is bigger than that
2: <laughs> yeah I, I don't think you would want to put out much more than a little campfire with that uh <laughs> unless you had access to some more water to get on it so
1: One of the real attractions is this auction, and we alluded to this earlier, is the fact that people come together and friends gather here and really enjoy the conversation of the contacts that are made. And sometimes there's follow-up, I would imagine, between tractor owners and truck owners to purchase a piece of equipment or maybe negotiate a sale on down the road sometime.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of that that goes on, you know. uh, And, of course, Meekum, they've got the bid goes on if it doesn't sell. You can always work with the work with Meekum and the consigner and try and get a deal struck, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, friendships that are made and relationships so I've got to say I've made a great circle of friends working these auctions and just getting to know a lot of our uh, buyers and sellers.
1: The folks at Mecom also provide transportation, and uh, I know some of this stuff goes all over the country. Do some of these pieces sometimes get put in a container and shipped to another nation, Max?
2: Um, I know there's been a a few occasions where that has happened. Um, I can't recall any of them specifically right now, but, I mean, it is really, and especially when you're going with the Internet and the phone bidding, it's become a worldwide market at these larger tractor auctions like
0: this.
1: Max Wilson from McHenry County, he's in that Marengo, Harvard area, and he's one of three commentators who will sit there alongside the auction ring as those antique tractors, some of them absolutely superbly restored, and some of them have never been touched. They've never been restored. They look the way they did when they came out of the plant in uh, Rock Island, Illinois, for International Harvester, or in Racine, Wisconsin, for J.I. Case, or Waterloo, Iowa, for John Deere, and when they look that good, as they might have the day they were manufactured, they can bring incredible prices. But Max sits there along with Carl Downs. Carl is out in the Iroquois County area, south of Chicago. He's one of the commentators. And Wendell Kelch, who is a well-known tractor restorer from Ohio, is always there alongside them commenting on the tractors and describing how those tractors look, and describing what uh, individuals have done to those tractors, sometimes to customize them. Some of these are are made uh, specifically by a guy in his shop to uh, go out on a tractor ride. They may put a, some steps on it to make it easier to get up there. They may put a bigger seat on it, one with uh, perhaps extra shock absorbers on it for a tractor ride, or they'll put a box on the back of it where you can put... Not just tools and gloves, but maybe a tow strap or maybe a cooler for a tractor ride. And it's just really interesting to see what they've done to these. And some of these tractors, Orion, were uh, advertised by Orion Samuelson on radio and television back in the day when they were coming out of International Harvester. And the prices were pretty good the past couple of days. Uh, they'll continue the auction today. There at Davenport, Iowa, again, it is not open to the public, but there will be an hour when the auction can be seen today on RFD-TV. Actually, it's a two-hour broadcast that will start at 10.30 this morning. Two hours on RFD-TV from the uh, Meekham Fall Premier. Some of the prices have been very good. A farmer friend of ours out in Kane County took a tractor to uh, the auction at Davenport, hoping to get 16000 for that international harvester, a gold demonstrator. And um, he got 17000 for it, so that's not bad at all. It's a good time, by all means, for those who get together, and they hope to get together again in the spring. They'll do one of these auctions again in March. And those who attend, who really enjoy the experience and appreciate the old tractors, hope to be able to do that again. You can get more information online at meekum.com. Orion?
0: All right, Max. Uh, It's interesting what's happened over the years to some of the uh, vehicles, automobiles, and now the tractor community is getting into it as well. And uh, it was interesting uh, hearing your visit and the friendships that have been made through these auctions. This is the Meekum Tractor Auction going on again today, and uh, you'll find it on RFD-TV, at least for parts of it. The good news uh, in a world of uh, distressing news is the cost of the average Thanksgiving dinner. Every year, the American Farm Bureau conducts a survey to get the cost of a thanksgiving dinner for 10 people and the information came out yesterday that the average cost for a thanksgiving dinner for 10 people $46.90 think about that for a moment less than $5 a person And another reason to say thank you to America's farmers for doing what they do to provide a food supply despite the COVID situation and anything else that might interrupt. And actually, the cost of the uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and this was the 35th annual survey of classic items found on the Thanksgiving Day dinner table, It indicates the average cost of this year's Feast for 10, $46.90. And that is a $2 decline from last year's average of $48.91. So um, enjoy that turkey. On Thanksgiving Day because America's farmers are certainly out there to produce the turkeys for that festive holiday. And uh, one other quick note that we want to share with you as we uh, move into the holiday season and it begins this coming week. The market closures because of the holiday season. The markets for Grain and livestock will be closed at the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. So make note of that. Make your marketing plans accordingly. And again, something I think that farmers can be thankful for is we pretty much wound down the uh, harvest season without a major weather problem during the harvest season, like heavy rains that stopped the combines. And uh, that didn't happen this year. Combines Uh, it's been tradition in agriculture that farmers like to have the combines parked and put away into the machine shed for the season by Thanksgiving Day. And I think we pretty well hit that mark this year because of the harvest weather and uh, the lack of rain moving through the Midwest and uh, the rest of the production area. So uh, at least families on the farms should be able to uh, enjoy the family Thanksgiving dinner and uh, not be concerned about the crops still standing in the field because the report I think on Monday said 92 or 93 percent of the corn and soybean crops have been harvested in the combine part. More to come here on the Saturday morning show. We'll check news headlines, and we'll check other activity. And uh, Mark Pearson will be joining us with his market guest a little bit later. I'll have some things to say on Samuelson Says. Not my things, but interesting, because years ago I discovered on the Internet The Farmer's Creed, written as far as we can determine back in 1915 by an Illinois farmer who shared his thoughts on what it means to be a farmer regardless of the year, regardless of the weather. So uh, stand by because we'll share that with you a little bit later on Samuelson Says. And there's more to come here on the Saturday Morning Show. And we're at 25 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show, and we appreciate your company at this early hour, because at the end of the year, December 31, the Saturday Morning Show will move into the hands of Lou Manfredini, who add an hour of time to his discussion on the many things that need fixing in your house or in your home. And uh, Lou will be taking over this hour because I'll be retiring. At least I have been told you think you'll retire, but you won't. And uh, since I've had several friends who have flunked retirement at least two or three times, yeah, the temptation will be there because I will miss being with you here on the Saturday morning show. So um, it's time for Samuelson Says to present. Well, this week, not my thoughts, but thoughts that were written in 1915. As far as we can determine, it's written by a farmer from Illinois entitled, The Farmer's Creed, and I'll share that with you when we continue. About uh, 100 years ago, an article was written by an Illinois farmer, Frank Mann was his name, and he titled it, The Farmer's Creed, and during this week of Thanksgiving, I want to share it it with you as written by the Illinois Farmer. Quote, I believe in a permanent agriculture, a soil that will grow richer rather than poorer from year to year. I believe that the only good weed is a dead weed and that a clean farm is as important as a clean conscience. I believe in the farm boy and the farm girl the farmer's best crops, and the future's best hopes. I believe in the farm woman and will do all in my power to make her life easier and happier. I believe in the country school that prepares for country life and a country church that teaches its people to love deeply and live honorably. I believe in community spirit. A pride in home and neighbors, and I will do my part to make my community the best in the state. I believe in the farmer. I believe in farm life. I believe in the inspiration of the open country. I am proud to be a farmer and will try earnestly to be worthy of that name. And I believe When a man grows old and sums up his days, he should be able to stand tall and feel pride in the life that he has lived. I believe in farming because it makes all of this possible. The words written by an Illinois farmer in 1915 to the best information I can find but it's certainly worth repeating and living during the week of Thanksgiving and the holiday season. So be safe, be well, my thoughts on Samuelson Says. A presentation of Nextar Media Group. 21 minutes before 7 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And as we look ahead to the many activities and events, they certainly are going to be different this year during the holiday season because of COVID-19. I'm often asked uh, the impact of COVID-19 on agriculture. And uh, one of the subjects I want to use to respond to those questions came to me this week from the American Lamb uh, Board that works with the U.S. Meat Export Federation to monitor and build export markets for many products produced on American farms, but this morning I want to spend a minute or so talking about the impact on the American lamb industry, because the Meat Export Federation carries out market access and development activities in more than 90 countries in an effort to increase the value and the profitability of U.S. lamb, beef, and pork. So here are some of the numbers from the American Lamb Board. The, uh, 19, in 2019, the American lamb industry exported 15,732 metric tons of products, including variety meats a 22% increase from 2018 the key export markets for american lamb in 2019 included mexico the caribbean the middle east and canada although exports to asia in 2019 remained slow recent access to taiwan and japan has created opportunities in high-end food service. In 2020, COVID-19 has impacted American lamb exports due to the pandemic and its effect on tourism and during the world markets uh, cutback in consumption. Food service and uh, the tourism-dependent markets like the Caribbean, Middle East, Japan and Taiwan, heavily impacted by the COVID-19 shutdowns. And domestically, supply of American lamb has been disrupted not only by pandemic issues, but by the closure of mountain states uh, earlier this year. We can't sell into The export market, what we are unable to produce and process, this year has brought a challenge to all sectors of the American lamb industry never seen before. And uh, in the closing comment, a bright spot in the export picture rests on opportunities in Japan, and Taiwan. Similar to the U.S. market, Japan experienced a retail surge as a result of COVID-19 because of food service options that were limited and consumers opted to eat at home. And as a result, the U.S. Meat Export Federation shifted um, 2020 promotional funds in Japan from fine dining and chef education to retail. The U.S. Meat Export Federation partnered with a Japanese retailer to launch new American lamb products, including boneless shoulder. And steaks in their 10 stores so what impact did the COVID-19 situation have on the lamb industry and the lamb producers here in the U.S. indeed it did because of the situation and the COVID-19 spread around the world so I hope you lamb producers will be able to survive the COVID-19 situation, and we'll continue to talk about the other areas of agriculture that indeed have been impacted. Right now, time to talk markets, and for that, every week we turn to our market reporting guest, Mark Pearson. So let's take a look at what happened in the uh, livestock industry this week. Well,
3: talking prices,
0: we've got to talk
3: commodity prices. Joining us today is Dave Bauer from Provenia, division of Cargill Animal Nutrition. Dave, you are in the hog space. When you take a look at this past year
4: and this year going forward, what's your headline when it comes to the hog markets? Well, I, I think uh, you have to mention China. And, and from a demand standpoint for pork, and from a competitive standpoint in feed grains, uh, China has, has driven the market to this point. And I think we'll continue to see that, whether it be on the pork side or whether that be on the grain side. Well, and that's
3: the thing. Over the past several weeks, well, two months almost, we've been talking about the rally in the grains. We haven't seen it nearly as pronounced in the meat markets. When you look at Chinese demand here in this year ahead, do you think they're going to continue
4: buying at the same pace they have been on the pork side here well, in the U.S.? and that is the, the million-dollar question. And I, they've got a lot of pork on the books. And I think uh, they, just this past week on Thursday, they did go into 2021 and and put out one of the biggest purchases we've seen th- thus far in 2021. And I think they will continue to be a buyer and we'll be watching those shipments closely as well because they've got a big book uh, on the on the purchase and we'll see when, when they start or we want them to continue to, to be shipping that pork. Um, into 2021, there's a lot of talk about uh, China growing their hog herd and being able to produce their own pork. And, you know, that's a very complex question as well, deserves a complex answer when it comes to the sow herd versus the hog production herd, and then how that comes into pork production. Well, I think that opens
3: up a question that a lot of folks have asked. When we listen to China talking about their domestic markets... How much can we trust those numbers, or what do you rely on when you're looking at Chinese hog herd growth going forward?
4: Well, one of the key things that we'll rely on are those consultants that travel to China um, 100 to 150 days a year, and they've not been able to do that since January. So our typical information uh, flow has not been able to really get good solid information Um, what you see out of china today is basically what they want you to see and it's very difficult to be able to really understand that and when they compare uh, increases in production to prior year. Last year at this time was the absolute bottom of production or the the lowest part of their herd, uh, whether it be the sow herd or the hog herd. And so when we compare to that, we're comparing to a very low level. But, but the question you always need to answer is, what are we comparing to? What are we comparing to? And I think the question is, what is China looking to
3: buy? Earlier in the pandemic, we saw China buying a lot of whole hogs or half hogs, anyway, Then they were completing the, the cutting domestically. Yeah. As you look ahead to this year, do you
4: anticipate that to continue? Are they jumping in whole hog, so to speak? I, I would say, yeah, they continue to be on the whole hog. I think they prefer that. Um, and we'll, we'll have to see. They're gonna, we're going to have to get used to them being into the market and out of the market. Mm-hmm. That's just their style. And a lot of times we have to deal with them also canceling purchases. When you look at this fall, we have seen grain producers
3: rejoicing after this rally in the grain markets. However, it has put livestock producers in a pinch. How should folks, livestock producers in particular, be managing this margin heading into the the winter?
4: Yes, and and that does become an issue. And when you look at the time of year that it is, it's a fall time, and typically during harvest, we don't see the kind of rally that we've seen this year. And it started, uh, well, back in September when USDA reduced carry-in stocks by 258 million bushel. That was a big change to the crop as as we came into this year there's another thing that really is is playing big into it and that's china Mm -hmm. and the purchases that china have on the books uh... the typically in an average year we see uh... or i should say from a purchase standpoint the purchases that they have this year if they take all those purchases, that would be close to a thousand percent more than they have over the last three years. So that in itself, uh, they have banned swill feeding in China due to the African swine fever and trying to control that. So not only can they not originate feed from swill feeding, they have have had some crop damage, maybe five, ten percent of, of their crop loss to flood. So they have to originate feed. And so ownership, nine-tenths of the law, as they say, um, China has come in and put a very big book on which is going to compete with the U.S. producer when it comes to feed. So if they haven't already, they're going to definitely need to be preparing for 2021 in feed costs and i don't know that we're we're done with where we are today i think my model would show that with a 1.7 billion bushel carryover in corn um, 404 in march corn is a good base price and then you can add some premium to that so trading in the 430 range now that's probably fair value but there are some thoughts that that could continue to work higher so for producers who are, were maybe
3: relying on harvest season in, in anticipation of getting some, some cheaper grain with regard to basis, how should they be managing those prices going forward? Should we
4: be buying just straight off the combine and then hedging? Well, there's, there's uh, a lot of the corn that came off the combine went into storage. And uh, with beans doing what they did, producers sold beans off the combine uh, to take take advantage of that market and now they have to pry that corn off of the farm. So we have seen basis levels firming in, in some regions and where that's pulling it out. Um, another thing to think about as well is with the vaccine talk that we've seen for COVID um, if we start to see a population that's becoming more confident and more healthy and traveling more that's going to be more gas usage and then more potential blending for corn uh, for ethanol, so there's a tug-of-war that could potentially happen on down the road as well, trying to pull that corn off farm, going to the river for export, going to ethanol, or going to, to feed use. Dave,
3: before we let you go, this past year has seen a lot of challenges for food service, restaurants,
4: hospitals, schools, etc. As you look at this winter, is that starting to come back? Well, we started to see that come back, and, and then with another surge in, in covid across rural America. We've seen things slow down a little bit, and uh, I think the retail level will continue to be strong, but but uh, we can only hope that we can keep the, the demand going from, from all levels of food service.
3: Thanks to Dave Bauer from ProVimi. Appreciate the conversation.
0: This week, uh, received the invitation to attend the National Agricultural Outlook Forum. That's the largest annual meeting and premier event of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And here's the invitation and the dates. And of course, it will be different because of COVID-19 this year. But the two-day forum will take place February 18 and 19, and due to COVID-19 and current auctions and restrictions on large gatherings in the Washington, D.C. area, the USDA Outlook Forum will be, here's that word again, virtual. And that's the first time in the history of the event, actually, this is the 93rd uh, Agricultural Outlook Forum. Its uh, theme this year, Building on Innovation, a Pathway to Resilience, builds on USDA's Agriculture Innovation Agenda, which was launched earlier this year to align USDA's resources, programs, and research. Toward the goal of increasing US agricultural production by forty percent while cutting the environment footprint of US agriculture in half by the year two thousand and fifty. The 2021 forum will be announced early next month in December, and USDA's Agricultural Outlook Forum began in 1923 to talk agriculture in our nation's capital. I've attended that session several times during my career, always fascinating, with one of the highlights being the report from the chief economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who will present his latest outlook for U.S. commodity markets and trade and discuss the U.S. farm income situation. And I might mention that this year's forum will be free, no registration charge, but uh, registration is open. The event takes place february 18 and 19 more to come when we continue with the saturday morning show it's a minute and a half away from our six o'clock news coverage this morning but this story caught my eye this week the national Cattlemen's beef association will be holding its annual meeting at the opryland hotel Not in February, but they'll postpone it until August. That uh, session will be held, and one of the notes I got from the cattleman started out by saying, Are you a singing star? NCBA's 7th Annual National Anthem Singing Contest is now open to current members of the NCBA and the women's group. The contest singer will sing the Star-Spangled Banner at the opening general session at the Cowboy Night at the Opry on Thursday, August 12. But you can enter now. The deadline for entry is May 14, 2021. Well, that's our time for this morning here on the Saturday Morning Show. As always, thank you for joining us. My thanks to Bob Ferguson, who does the engineering work for this program.